Hi everybody, this is author and filmmaker Matthew Clickstein here. Gonna be talking about my latest project, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, here on Heroes Home Base Podcast. <laughs> This is Rob. This is Mark. Hey, this is Rich. Welcome to another episode. We got a lot of stuff to talk about tonight, fellas. What's going so on? So much stuff. I, I feel like we I feel like we drop an episode and then like the floodgates of hell of news in the comic book genre just start flooding all over the streets. It's insane. I'm okay with that. It makes for an interesting week and an interesting conversation. I know viewers or listeners can't see, but Rob is literally like drinking straight out of a bourbon bottle right now. <laughs> he just can't handle the news. <laughs> I'm telling you. So something about daylight savings time and my children, they just don't like it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to finish my Woodford Reserve right now. Nice. How about you, Rich? Your kids sleeping through this shit? Uh, it really doesn't affect them too much. I mean, they don't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Bob. I mean, it's they don't take naps and stuff like that anymore, like your kids do. So I think that that plays a lot into it. But they did struggle when they were younger. But uh, if anything, it affects me because I, I just want to sleep. <laughs> well, we get an extra hour of sleep. Yeah. Yep. I don't, oh, man. I don't know if it's worth it. I remember being a senior in high school, and my favorite thing to do was to sleep. <laughs> if I wasn't working. Or hanging out with you guys, or hanging out with Kim. I'm sorry, show quitter Kim. I I, I just wanted to sleep. It was like really, it was my favorite thing to do was to just sleep. <laughs> he was good at it. I was. <laughs> he was so good at it. I think he rolled out of the bunk bed and stayed asleep. No, that was way way earlier. Anyway, was it? So uh, what else is going on um, besides daylight savings time and kids not sleeping? And um, we did have some uh some really cool stuff go on this past week uh we did another live signing more like a live interview at the laughing ogre with mr clickstein again it was really really cool it was a good interview it really was i mean man talk about doing the lord's work he really really is i mean i felt his passion and conviction for his mission and his book and it's just it was a great conversation i mean i walked away really he's just he's really on a mission i was glad you at least got to interact with him a bit mark since uh herb was covering for you the last time we talked to him yeah he was cool to talk to very cool. So I guess uh, we can start this interview off with uh, some of our uh, our highlights from that interview where the three of us asked him questions and we got we got kind of deep. It was kind of like a almost a refresher from our first interview with him, but the book had just come out, The uh, Kids of Woodley High or Junior High Take Over the World. And uh, I literally opened it up and started, I think I'm about three chapters in with the kids, so we're, we're reading it. Um, so I think, I think that's how we'll start this episode. We'll just go straight to some of our questions for Matt. And, uh, I, I highly recommend picking up this book. I think the publisher was completely overwhelmed. He was saying that, I mean, the first printing of this book is sold out. Um, none of the stores around us have it in stock. Um, so hopefully that's a good indication of success for it. Because like Mark said, he is doing the Lord's work and he is extremely passionate about these kids and this program and just getting the story out there. So 
you guys got anything else to say before we, we go to that? Something that stuck out to me was to echo on Mark's statement about his passion. I mean, I didn't know that this was almost a decade long process for him and, you know, having faith in the project and knowing, not letting it die. I mean that sometimes most people would just get frustrated and walk away from it, but man, he's, he's definitely, uh, he's definitely, one hell of a guy, man. Without further ado, we'll take you to some of the highlight portions of that interview when we were live from the Laughing Ogre. So, Matthew, let's dive into this new um, this book that you have finally put out. Can you say a little bit about how long it's taken you, what the journey was like, and you know what kind of went into it for you? Yeah, a lot went into this one. Uh, the Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World is a very special project for me for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them, as you said, is it has been truly an extremely long and circuitous journey. Uh, main subject is loosely based on a band that I've worked with for 21 years now called the Kids of Whitney High. Uh, they're a group comprised of singer-songwriters with developmental disabilities. They originally stemmed out of a music program at a special ed high school in uh, Los Angeles, kind of down by downtown Los Angeles, very close to USC actually, which is where I went to film school, how I met them and became very close with them and started working a lot with the band in a lot of different ways and and, uh, became very friendly with them and their families. Uh, And over the years, I just made a lot of short films and different other projects with and about them, even after I graduated USC. Uh, ultimately uh, helping to put together a tour for them uh, up from Los Angeles to Seattle and back. We showed some of their films, they played music. Uh, we, we stopped in at some really cool spots, like uh, they did a reading of one of their books that they were writing at the time about their lives. One of the members of Lisa De La Torre is a writer. Uh, nice. she, did, she did a little reading of it at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, the really famous uh, beat uh, bookstore. Uh, we did a radio show at the uh, community radio station um, at uh, the uh, Evergreen College in Oregon, which is the first place that Nirvana played live nice. or something like that. Nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so we were, we were kind of, we stopped at uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, memorial when we were up in the Seattle area, and they, they actually played some music there. So while we were on tour and they were showing their stuff, we were also kind of doing a little history of rock and roll in a way. Oh, yeah. um, made a documentary about it that that we finished in 2010, showed around a little bit, never did much with, but decided with the release of this book and some other things that have happened, this is the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act this year as well, um, we decided to work with trauma films like, you know, Toxic Avenger and everything, Sergeant Kabuki Man, and they've uh, taken the film and graciously are going to be showing it for a year on their streaming service. Yes, Troma has a streaming service <laughs> called Troma Now. The documentary is called Act Your Age, The Kids of Whitney High Story. Do want to be clear that, that a good way of kind of bringing this all together and wrapping up is the documentary is, uh, I would say, PG-13 and above. There, okay. uh, It is a rock. The Kids of Whitney High are a rock band. Uh, they are on tour, going to a lot of bars and things like that. So some adult language uh, and that kind of thing. But the book, The Kids of Whitney Junior High Take Over the World, loosely based on the band, is a middle grade reader, so it's for, it's supposed to be technically for ages eight to twelve. It's more like a uh, book for younger readers. Um, though I'm hoping and would imagine that older readers will enjoy it as well, the way that we might enjoy Roald Dahl or Judy Bloom or Lewis Sacker, or Phantom Tollbooth, or Shel Silverstein or The Little Prince or something like that. And 
that is what the kids of Whitney Junior High take over the world is all about. Nice. So, literally, <laughs> how long? Like, so I met I met the band twenty one years ago. I wrote the proposal for the book eight years ago. Okay, eight years. Uh, ago. I sold the concept and the proposal to the small publisher that put it out called Schiffer S C H I F F E R two years ago. And then the book came out September 28th. So met the band 21 years ago, wrote the proposal eight years ago, sold it two years ago. And then it came out about a month and a half ago. Uh, so it has certainly been a really lengthy process, but yeah. uh, you know, that's what happens sometimes. We all hear stories of a lot of filmmakers in particular who had an idea when they were younger and it took 20 years to come out um or whatever that might be i just had to be patient in a way it's always something i've been pushing my career took off in publishing in particular i've done some film and television work as well some theater but mostly i've done a lot of books and i just kept trying to push that concept and it was very difficult um you know all i'll say for now is that then and frankly now people just really didn't want to talk about disability and so it's been a challenge ever since I began working with the kids, even back 21 years ago when we were doing videos and such yeah. in LA. And the kids have a, something of a cachet. They have a bit of a cult following. There's a lot of connection between them and the world of like Dr. Demento, for example, Weird Al, and um, some of the punk scene of that time. Uh, like I said, Troma. Uh, we did some stuff with some of the guys from South Park, Jackass and MTV. We were talking to people at Comedy Central and HBO. And we were hoping to do some kind of a show or to, to get the kids out there in a bigger way. Because yeah. they were always playing all over the LA area. And there would be celebrities at their shows. I mean, we saw Christina Ricci at one. We saw Adam Goldberg at one. Crispin Glover used to hang around all the time. Uh, wow. There were definitely people, you know, we know that like Spike Jones is a big fan. The Beastie Boys were a big fan. Um, uh, Marilyn Manson, Fiona Apple. I mean, they had fans and people have covered their music. Kid Cudi sampled one of their songs. Wow. They were in The Ringer with Johnny Knoxville and Catherine Hagel, produced by the Frehley Brothers, wow. which is how a lot of people maybe have heard of them, the kids of Whitney High. Um, a lot of connection with, with some of the Daniel Johnson, Wes, with Wesley Willis world for obvious reasons. Uh, and a lot of other kind of rock documentary filmmakers and such that we've become friendly with over the years. So people knew what we were doing and people knew about the kids that would be high. We just were never able to take it to that next level, even though we tried very hard for a very long time. And really a lot of it explicitly, sometimes they would say, you know, we don't want to touch disability with a 10 foot pole. They were just scared. Yeah. They, you know, it's, frankly, a lot of the stuff that they have discussed so well and probably the best on South park, especially when Timmy first came into the scene, all this stuff with like, Timmy and the Lords of the Underworld, that whole friggin' episode and all the stuff that came up with that is exactly what we've gone through this entire time and why we appreciate what South Park does. A lot of the kids that we behind members love South Park too. I they bet, feel like yeah. a really honest portrayal of kids with disabilities who, yes, get in fights and swear and do all the other things that quote unquote regular kids do. And so the kids of Whitney High and a lot of people with disabilities that I've known over the years um, really, really appreciate what South Park does. That, that might be, that might seem counterintuitive to some, always in an offensive or whatever, but right. you know, they love it and they love being seen on a show where they can be nuanced and bad and messy and crazy too and have, and be just part of the gang. And that's a lot of what the kids of Whitney High are about in their music and a lot of what we, I was trying to bring to this book, the kids of Whitney Junior High take over the world is children with disabilities that are that are talked about in the book 
but who, again, can be mischievous, messy, disingenuous. As one of the characters say, and this is based on something the Kids of Winnie High member told me, we're not all angels. And, you know, I think that's an important message to relay, especially to younger readers, that people with disabilities are people too, and are great in a lot of ways, and are not so great in a lot of ways, just like every other human being. But, you know, they're not all angels, as the kids say, and as one of the characters in the book says. Is that the theme that you want people to take away from the book? Is that, you know, people with disabilities are people too? Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of themes in the book that certainly one of the central uh, motifs and, and as it is of the kids of Whitney High's music, they do their own version of the Otis Redding song, Respect, for example. It's actually on two of their albums, um, one on the album that it's actually on and then another that's sort of a live concert that they put out from a club called the Key Club. And it's referenced on the back of the book, don't ignore us when we walk by, we're not that different, that's no lie. Um, it's the idea of it, we're not that different and that's no lie. And though there's a lot of, in the book and with the kids of Whitney High's lyrics over the years about everyone's an individual and each person in the band is an individual. Overall, there's an idea of we're just like quote unquote regular kids or regular people. Um, and a lot of them don't even like those terms, regular or normal or handicapped or disabled. There's still a lot of discussion going on yeah. about those terms and, and what does a disability mean and who really is disabled. There's a, another conversation that happens in the book, and this is I've also observed this before, of uh, you know kids with Whitney Hive members who don't even like the idea of being categorized or compartmentalized together. Right. Why is it that I have cerebral palsy and suddenly that connects me to somebody who might be living with blindness. We're, we're living totally different experiences. Why are we being compared for a quote unquote disability? So that discussion comes up and then others say, no, it's important that we have this kind of unity in this community of quote unquote people with disabilities. And these are conversations I've had a lot of even over the last few weeks with a lot of people I've been talking to about the book at different nonprofit organizations we're working with or for. I have some friends who are actors and actresses, comedians and other musicians with disabilities who talk about the perception of their disability versus what they're trying to do. I know an actress in LA, she was shortlisted for the Emmys this last year. She's been in a ton of stuff and she's tired of being associated with her disability. She doesn't, she doesn't mm-hmm. like it. She, she, why should she only be able to play characters with disabilities because she has a disability and it's affected her work in the past. I won't say the show or the person who, took her role, but there was a role that was written for her on a show that ended up being pretty big, and it was going to be a character with a disability. Ultimately, the the studio, the network decided to go with a big name to take the role, and they just took the disability out. Wow. So it was a double slap in the face to her. Yeah. And this is, you know, she's in her early 40s. She's not messing around. This is work for her. She loves her art. She's an amazing actress she's done a lot of really good work with activism and whatnot but as she said she's trying to do less activism and more work because she needs to pay the bills and she is an actress and has been most of her life and she's tired of these decisions having to be made based on her disability and so you know we're having conversations like that all the time and these are the kinds of things i wanted to talk about in the book but keeping it palatable and fun and entertaining and accessible for younger readers that's Um, great yeah, that's what I'm hoping we were able to do. And I, I think we did. The reviews have been pretty good and the, the comments on Amazon and just people talking about it that I know seem to, that seems to have held true. So um, I got to ask anything, you, was the delay, yeah, the, the, the delay from the length of this project, do you think it stems from the stigma that's attached, 
attached to the material that has caused the delay and how long it took you to get yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I feel very strongly about that okay. um, because again, I've been quite successful, especially over the last few years in selling book projects. I, I've, I've done quite a few just in the last year or two alone and in different genres and different media, comic books, Non That's what I'm saying, dude. You said you were at the bar and you came up with the idea for You Are Obsolete and it was yeah, like a no, comic like a, a year yeah, later. I had, I had the comic book series come out and it was a graphic novel. That just came out a couple months ago. I mean, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I know how to sell books and I know what concepts sell and what concepts work and how to put them together. I've helped people uh, put together their own book proposals. I've uh, done some guest lecturing on it. I, I know what sells. I know what's going to work. I've been quite successful at that. Um, and I've tried over and over again to do something with the kids that would be high project. Again, these eight years of the yeah. proposal was written and it just, even the companies that were working with me on these other projects would say no. And, and I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that sometimes the, the, the rationale was that explicit. They didn't even try to hide it. They would say, wow. especially some of these people I know a little bit better. So the editors or publishers I've maybe worked with before it's, it's nudge, nudge. And they're like, come on, Matt, you know, we can't do that. Like we, wow. would get, we would get destroyed. And unfortunately, I'll say this is again where I think South Park really gets it right is that our biggest challenges over the years, and this is also from just having worked with the kids for 20 plus years and also knowing their history about 10 years even before that, and other groups that work with similar kinds of communities and people with disabilities have talked with me about the same thing as well, is it's almost like we're most inhibited and, and prohibited and pushed back by the people that are trying to protect yeah. uh, persons with disabilities. We don't want them to get made fun of, you know, they're being exploited. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, people are laughing at them. Uh, they might fall down on the stage. We might put them in a TV show or a movie and people are going to say negative things about them. Let's just not do it at all. And wow. that's what ends up happening. And it keeps these groups from being able to go and do anything. And, you know, every single one of those excuses we can refute immediately, the worst being the idea of so-called exploitation. And it's the concept of, oh, well, you know, it's unfair to make a TV show with them because they don't know what they're doing. And it's like, that's so insulting. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they do. <laughs> that is, I mean, what, that's extremely insulting. And, you know, not to mention like all media or whatever, what we're doing right now is exploitation. We're taking people's time or you guys are listening to me talk. I'm not getting paid for this. You guys are probably not getting paid for this. You know, a beautiful actress or a very handsome man who's in a movie and it's like clear they're there because they look like a Viking or a supermodel, whatever. There's some degree of, I mean, but that's show business and that's yep. performance and people want to be doing these things. And it's really unfortunate to pull them back because of that. Or because again, you think um, they're going to get made fun of or pointed at or heckled. And again, just like any other performer who's going on stage, just like yeah. any comedian going on stage. So this guy's in a wheelchair. This guy's got cerebral palsy, like Josh Blue, who's an amazing comic and has really severe cerebral palsy. Uh, and, you know, and I know the guy, and he's very, very funny and everything. And like, but let him go and do his thing. And he, it's not like he doesn't know that people aren't looking at that and, and yeah. maybe making fun or something, but he still wants an opportunity to do it. So let him do it. Absolutely. Don't hold him back. And that's a lot of what we've struggled with over the years, very, very, very directly um, in trying to do more projects with the kids at Whitney High. Even while I've been trying to promote this book, I've experienced that. And I've had some very behind the red tape, behind the red, the velvet rope conversations with editors and journalists at outlets you've heard of before. 
um, and we've had these conversations. This is still going on right now, I'm, and it's really affecting our ability to get the word out about the about the book and the kids that would be high and all the things we're we're trying to do and the documentary that's on trauma now now. And um, you know, we don't want to be victim. Uh, we don't want to be victims. We don't want to say you know that this is impossible, but it is difficult. And other groups that I've worked with and other groups that I've known over the years, theater groups, other music groups you know, comedy groups and whatnot made up of people with disabilities are all having a lot of extra challenges with that. And it's especially frustrating right now when there's supposed to be so much change going on. Yeah. And there certainly has been little, little amounts, but it's just not the same. And so kind of watching certain things going on and moving a lot faster, and yet still the conversation about disability is just not really being had on a larger level, which is really unfortunate. You know, Very. you can't get much more quote unquote marginalized than that. These are people who can't even walk some of them. These are people who can't even see some of them. And they really need A, a lot of help and assistance with certain things and B, the opportunity to get out there and to present themselves that they do want to be performers or writers or musicians or filmmakers or actors or whatever it is. And, you know, it's very difficult for them even just to get there, you know, yeah. because mobility reasons or, or things like that so it's you a bring up uh, want to keep having. yeah what it's really inspiring what you're doing it really is i mean i can just as you were just telling me the push to get this information out there and really for them the push to see that the although they are have disabilities that they have talent too that they have yeah. dreams too yes. i mean the fact that you're out there pushing that is really there really is power and intention and i love when you said that you know the reviews on amazon have been great because that i'm sure is very reassuring that mm -hmm. your intention for doing this work is it's being seen you know that people are, are having this kind of conversation and really shining a light on people with disabilities and this is a totally new conversation for me because they it's true they have talents and dreams and wishes and things that they'd like to show to the world just like everyone else so i mean more power to you and we have a saying on the show that you are truly doing the lord's work <laughs> thank you Absolutely. i appreciate that um you know and you know and I, i've said this in another interview too um but you know some of it also is i almost wish i could i could take the spotlight off of myself um you know i've i've talked even in the past about like sort of regretting having my name even on the book it's like i really wanted this to be the kids of winnie high's book i wanted it to be their story um they were involved in the consult and they were they were consultants um, on it, on the development, because I wanted to make sure all the representation was authentic, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so since a lot of it was based on them and their band, I wanted to make sure I was getting it right, you know, even beyond the disability, like these, you know, it was based on real people in a way. So I wanted to make sure to get that in there as well. But there's also in the back of the book, an interview with one of the kids that would be high members, Pee Wee, talking about why this is important and representation and so forth. And I really want the spotlight to be on them. And I really want the spotlight to be on what they're trying to do. Um, you know, I, I have my own inroads and, and I'm able to connect with people like you guys and, and some of these stores that I've done signings at and some of the other projects that I've been lucky enough to work on over the years. Um, you know, they, they don't, they don't have that kind of inroad for a number of reasons. And I just want to make sure I'm not, that the spotlight's not too much on me and that it's going over on them. And, you know, it's an interesting question to have actually, because um, just to roll this into, you know, another thing that happened with us that we've been really grateful for, but also I can't help but be uh, a little bit, um, you know, kind of flustered about also what it means on a large level is Mayim Bialik, the star of the show Blossom, 
and mm -hmm. one of the stars of the Big Bang Theory. She is an amazing woman, very, very smart, excellent actress, excellent singer. She does so many different things. She's a great mom. She's been a real advocate for people with disabilities amongst many other things. And she was nice enough to not only accept a copy of the book, I, we have some uh, mutual connections, um, but she loved it and really in a very proactive way wanted to help us out using her celebrity and her social media influence That's and awesome. other resources she has. And she wow. was fantastic about it. She posted a selfie with the book. She posted a video talking about it that she let us use. We made all these custom commercials for other bookstores and things to post. It was really helpful. And we saw it happen. It got hundreds of thousands of impressions and the book became a bestseller on Amazon after she did that and everything else. And that was great. And she's been so wonderful to us. But at the same time, I have to sit there and go, you know, it's, it, it's sad that it takes having to connect with a celebrity yeah. or a social media influencer to make that happen. And I've not seen that kind of thing happen with other books that I've worked on, for example. I've not seen that happen with friends of mine's projects. And I have to wonder that if we didn't have Maya there to save the day, and she did, and we're grateful of it. And, you know, we're not shooting that down at all. But if we didn't have her there, you know, maybe nobody would have heard about the book or cared or whatever. I mean, I've seen headline articles about the book saying, you know, Maya Bialik loves this book or like actress praises this book. Mm. And I mean, there it is right there. And again, I don't blame her. I don't blame any of the people involved with her team and publicity and everything she's done. It's been great. But it's just strange that we're in this society right now and this the system like, that we operate yeah. within. Yeah. yeah. And so that part of it is is difficult. And to know that the kids of Winnie Hive had to deal with that special challenge this entire time. Yeah. And, you know, luckily we, we had Mayim do that. And hopefully there'll be others like that who will come through that we've gotten the book to or who are interested in helping us out. Um, so, you know, we're just, it's, it's an odd time to be doing anything, obviously, yeah. because lockdown and COVID and the election and everything else. And, you know, just watching again from this kind of, um, this crow's nest over the scene right now of media and publishing and communication has been really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, really, really unique vantage point to watch this all from. <laughs> Well, I wanted to say, because um, I got the copy of the book from you, and uh, my kids and I, we try to, you know, right before bed, you know, dig in and read, and we got about four chapters in, but I already wanted to tell you that I relate to Robbie a lot, because even like the opening chapter before the peanut butter and jelly fight, I feel like... Rob and I can can attest to this like I'm not trying to make myself a victim here but like the bullying factor and like the other kids like we were comic book nerds still a yeah. comic book nerd today and it wasn't cool to be a nerd and like <laughs> I can just relate to that and it's and the feeling of having a, a hero like <laughs> Pee Wee show up and like I don't know dude I'm already digging it they're loving it and uh you you really are like th your passion for it is so palpable dude and like you're just i know you don't want to take a whole lot of credit but man just just by carrying the torch and wanting to get it out man you should be proud of yourself and and it will work out it will and like dude you're what's that saying mark like how much karma is coming your way like you're always talking about that like yeah it's coming back to you it's coming back into it's coming back to you. your intention is so pure you're not looking for you know millions of dollars in fame your intention <laughs> yeah, you know what i mean it's <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it's just, you know, you, your intention is so pure and it will only come back to you. You know what I'm saying? Well, you know, there's a wonderful line in the movie, The Color Purple, by the character Stealing. She says, everything you've done to me is already done to you. So what you're doing for these kids and that community is just really incredible. You are truly, you know, I'm a communications major and we have a saying that um, you're a one man band, you know, kind of thing. And so that's a great, uh, I, I totally see that in you and I can't wait to read the book. Yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is tough to be a one man band. I mean, I, and especially since while I'm doing all of this, and, and trying to support the book and get it out there and dealing with a lot of logistical issues and such that we've had, especially during lockdown and so forth, to just promote a book and get it out there. Um, and all the extraordinary challenges we've had to face and overcome and are still dealing with even right now. Um, I'm working on various other projects. I mean, I really am a working class creative, as I like to call it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I have to go from project to project to project. I'm normally working on five or six at a time. And they're all in different stages. Uh, stages. Yeah, some I'm pitching, some I'm developing, some I'm selling, some I'm working on, some I'm working on on different levels, some I'm promoting, some I have to go back to and look at again. And then there's new edits. And then, I mean, we're dealing right now with there's going to be a Russian translation of my Simpsons book, which wow. ultimately is a good thing. But that damn wow. book came out a couple of years ago. And we're still <laughs> having to make decisions. And how do we want to deal with this and that? And is the cover okay? And it's just like, <laughs> good God, man. I mean, it's like, you know, that, that feels like a lifetime ago. But I, but I got to deal with it. And, you know, so it's, it's been very intriguing uh, and complex to be working on all these different projects all the time it's exhausting it's enervating it's extra stress i can't stop thinking about uh everything at once but it's funny that you say that because we talked to author one of mark's favorite authors greg cox about his book that came out and he like completely blanked on one of the main characters because he developed it so long ago yeah i'm not surprised at all i mean it's it's something a lot of people don't understand about this business and trust me i've had to deal with obviously not going to go too deeply, nothing real serious or anything, but just, you know, just certain tax things or legal things or whatnot. And I have to like explain to very smart professional people <laughs> what the real life situation of being a writer is. And my wife even has to explain certain things and just like, you know, yes, we have a contract, but not everybody always follows the contract. Right. And I might, you know, money might be delayed six months and that affects in like, I really, we have to kind of educate even certain, you know, people like, yeah, lawyers and stuff where we're dealing with certain contracts or things and have to sort of explain that it's not all what it looks like in movies or TV shows. Right. Yep. And I'm proud that over the last few years, I've lived in places like Lawrence, Kansas and Iowa City and different places around the country. Yeah, I've cheated a little. I'm always in a college town, as you might have noticed. Um, hey. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to have some bookstores. But, right. Um, no, I, and everywhere I've gone, I've really enjoyed meeting all these different people, people like yourselves on the yeah. podcast right now, people like the guy, the, the gang at the laughing over has been great. You know, I really like everybody there. Um, I've met some really good film and, and TV and writing people in Dayton as I did when I was in Lawrence, Kansas, as I did when I was in Iowa, as I did in Nebraska and other places I've lived, you can find those people and they're there and they have great stories to tell Hell and they're yeah. very interesting people. And you know, they should be able to get their story out there too. And I think yeah. that all flows right back to my interest in the kids of Whitney High and working with people with disabilities over the years is I'm very 
connected to and interested in the story of people who might have a lot to say and just don't have an outlet for it because they don't have that access and they don't have the resources to gain access. Yeah. And it's why it's so important for me to work with the kids of Whitney High. In addition to the fact that I love them as people and I love their music and I listen to it a lot. And I've probably been to a hundred kids of Whitney High shows, which are extremely unique singular experiences that listening to the music on CD or on record just is not going to be a substitute for you have right. to be at a show. It's just, it's just the way that it is. I mean, you just have to go to a Kids and Winnie High show sometime. And I, I really desperately hope that we can have more in the future when hopefully things get back to hopefully, normal. Hopefully, yeah. So I want to go back for a second. Yeah. I think um, we're talking about the entertainment industry, publishing, I mean, Silicon Valley, like a whole bunch of things. It kind of pisses me off that it's like we're in a time where we are saturated with endless options to entertain ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there is not any folks with disability, like period. And if it is, it's like, here's a, a, a token role or here's like this stereotyped role. And it's, it really kind of speaks to, we, it's 30th, you know, ADA, but we really haven't progressed very far, it sounds like. Right. And that's, a sh- that's shit. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I mean, there, there's there's been some there's been some programs and things over the last couple of years that have uh, represented fairly well people with disabilities. We were talking about South Park, the show Speechless for a little while. Um, you know, there again are certain stand-ups like Josh Blue and a few others who are out there who are doing uh, comedy and who are writing books and such about it as well. Um, so there, there's 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 a little there's a tiny little sprinkling of it it's not nearly enough and it's not nearly as much and and as you just said i mean this is also coming from people i know with disabilities all over the country who are are adamant about trying to be on tv and in films and who have great stories to tell uh that actress i was just talking about um she's had multiple times to go back to the hospital to basically learn how to walk again has had all these issues with her spine since she was four years old she's now in her 40s and it's really impacted and affected her life and her ability to work and what she wants to do. And, you know, it's amazing. Um, her name is Eileen Grubba, by the way, you know, I mean, and she's been writing about this, talk about this G-R-U-B-B-A, very, very special woman. And it's amazing that she's able to work and live in LA and perform and be in all these TV shows and have to deal with things like just getting out of bed in the morning sometimes yeah. or some of the, just the pain and how distracting it is or the humiliation or embarrassment of certain things that happen to her day to day, um, the looks, the insults dealing with this. And, you know, and still she, she is able to overcome and to do so many amazing things, even for somebody, even if she didn't have a disability, it'd still be amazing. Just being in LA and being an actress and a successful one is, is, is one of the hardest things you could do. Yeah, and she's done. And she has to deal with things like sometimes just walking down the street can be difficult. Um, and so, you know, it's, and, and, and think about it, like, imagine the stories she can tell and imagine the fresh perspective she can bring to certain things, even beyond people with disabilities, just talking about love and relationships and fear and being a woman in today's society and just certain other things that just that story is really not getting out there as much or, or as you were just saying, like really at all. And so and uh, you know it's important that we do what we can to support that. Um, and I, that's just again, I, I keep coming back to it. You know, that's a lot of what 
I, I was trying to do with the book. You know, you were saying before, I think it was Mark, you were asking about, you know, if that uh, the theme of the book. I mean, the, the biggest theme is a meta one, which is, you know, look at these people, listen to what they have to say, let them talk to, let, you know, make some room at the table for them. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't seem like the effort's really being put in. And again, some of these people, like, can't get to the meetings, you know, some of these people right. can't get to the show. Some of these people can't get to the school. Some of these people can't use the computer in the same way. I, I want to get Josh Blue, for example, a copy of the Kids of Whitney High book. And I was talking with his manager a few weeks ago, and it's difficult for Josh to read a book because of cerebral palsy. So we're trying right now very hard, and we're getting close to getting an audio book done. Hell I yes. also would like to do a Braille version of the book. Hell yes. Resources are limited. This, you know, The publisher is limited. We're working on trying to get partnerships going. But we want the book to be accessible, obviously, to other people with disabilities. Um, so we're trying to do all these different things. But just think about you know, what, what some of these people with disabilities have to go through just to like get up and out of bed and out of the house or get on the computer or whatever it is. And, you know, in addition to being really funny or being amazing musicians or being great actors or actresses or having a fantastic story to tell and being able to do it well, you know, I'm not just saying, Hey, the guy's in a wheelchair, you know, give him a job. I'm saying, you know, that particular guy in a wheelchair is really smart and funny and And plays the banjo really, really well. And, you know, it might be hard for him to get to a concert hall or whatever, but like, let's, let's help him be able to be seen and heard, you know, not be inhibited just because he's in a wheelchair. Well, and something that comes to mind for me is, you know, I'm a firm believer in, you know, your values change as the experiences change. And if you allow yourself to be open to new experiences. And I think part of that is being open to hearing these other stories. Yes. And I do think you're spot on with we're being inundated with very similar stories. Right. And what an awesome opportunity we all have to broaden our exposure to the stories of other folks. Mm-hmm. And I think this book and the work that you've been doing, I think if folks are willing, it's an opportunity to have a different experience and maybe open your eyes, open your heart you know, and be willing to have something different. So that's, that's what it's all about is, is I, I look, I love stories. I really do. I love mm-hmm. different characters. Uh, I was reading autobiographies and biographies of some of the first books I ever read. It was just an instinct in me. I was in third, fourth, fifth grade. You know, I was, I was reading adult books pretty early on and I tended more often. And you never stopped. But yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I was very, I, I, I didn't read too many children's books. I read, you know, uh, a lot of books that were biographies and autobiographies and, you know, we're talking George Burns and Chuck Jones and, you know, people were very before my time. I was just, uh, uh, you know, interested in that kind of stuff and reading a lot about old uh, monster movies and things like that. I was probably one of the only people who was six or seven years old who knew Bella Gosi was and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr. I would do reports about it. My teachers thought I was crazy. I sometimes <laughs> have, teachers have to talk to my mom that I was too obsessed with like these movie monsters. Oh boy. My mom was like, is he reading? Is he, wait, your problem is my son's reading too much? They're like, yeah. He's, they're, she's like, bye. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like, mm, yeah. So, you know, I, I've always been interested in stories and biographies and autobiographies in the way stories are told through movies and TV series and cartoons and things like that. 
now I write books of my own about these things. I mean, it's what my whole life is about. And I want information. I'm like Johnny Five from the Short Circuit movies, you know, input. I want input. And the way to get that is traveling and meeting different people and hearing different stories. And it's frustrating to me when I can't get to those stories because yeah. the people telling those stories are having trouble getting them out there. And, yeah. and breaking through this wall of super saturation that you guys were talking about before. There's just so much garbage out there. Yeah. So similar. And it's made by the same seven or eight people. And, you know, it's, it's like my hard drive is getting inundated with the same information. It's just overriding it over yeah, and over and over exactly. again. I need and it becomes disposable. Crash. It becomes ephemeral. It's too much. And, and, and the worst part of all is that, yeah, we're, it's missing certain flavors, certain colors, yes. certain sounds, certain experiences that are not being mixed into the rest of the media consomme. And I, I can't say it enough. I have been told by people at networks and, and channels and cable channels and companies, you know, everyone has heard of that we're scared of talking about disability. And, you know, it's, and it still goes on. And, uh, you know, I don't know what else to say. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are great little blips. I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's a fantastic documentary that's been, I think, on Netflix called Crip Camp that did quite well at Sundance this last year about a, about a summer camp for people with disabilities. And it happened again to be going in the 60s and 70s. So they were all getting naked and fucking and doing drugs and drinking and having fun. And a lot of the documentary is like, yeah, because guess what is the fucking 60s and 70s? Just because they're in a wheelchair. Doesn't mean they're not partying and fucking games and fucking too, goddammit. You know, and that's a lot of what the documentary is about because it's talking to people now who are like in their like 60s and 70s and being like, you're damn right. We were like having fun and fucking and doing drugs and drinking because it was the 60s and we were at summer camp. Well, fuck yourself. So what if we were in a wheelchair? I mean, I love that kind of shit. Right. Those are a lot of people that I've worked with with disabilities. And some of the things I've done like uh, with other groups, a theater group in Denver, for example, called Family, P-H-A-M-A-L-Y is we did kind of this sort of vagina monologues type of yeah. show, like this, this awesome. multimedia show. We did movies, we did cartoons, we did music, we did all different kinds of things, sketches, monologues. And it was about these people, the, the people who were in it, it was about their lives and, and using their lives to tell jokes and to, to write songs and to do all these different things. And it was a full 90 minute live show. I was extremely proud of it. We did it in Boulder, Colorado. That's awesome. And, you know, I, we were talking about really personal things because just like you would, if you were putting together a stand-up comedy act or something like that, it was about their lives and their experiences. And we were playing with taboos and yeah. we were doing some things that were pretty provocative. And we were doing some things that definitely probably made some people go, whoa, we even did a thing <laughs> at the very beginning where where we had some audience participation we had one of our actors in the crowd pretending like she was being offended already and was wow. sort of arguing with people on stage and then it turns out oh she has a traumatic brain injury which she really that's this person did and she forgot she was in the show and then everybody you know and it, becomes <laughs> this whole thing. it was like a twist and it was basically telling the audience right away like Hey, we're going to be fucking with you assholes. Don't you forget just because these people have disabilities doesn't mean they're not going to be playing some tricks on you, the audience. And it was, it was a great way to open the show. And then we did all these different things. So we were talking about very personal things and other groups that I've worked with, with short films or music or whatever, the kids when you hide themselves, it's the same kind of thing. So, um, and again, it's like, I, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that's like, well, I don't necessarily have a, what would be considered a disability, but 
you know, I am a good storyteller and I know what sells and I know what works and I'm a very good producer so I can get things done. So yeah. it's been my great joy to work with these people. And what I get out of it, aside from friendship, is also their stories and experiences. And I help yeah. them to figure out ways, as I also do with writing workshops and other things I've done over the years, guest lectures at colleges, to tell those stories that will be palpable at work and will connect with audiences and be it this book or that theater show or some of the other projects we've done over the years. I'm happy that I can do that. Yeah, and I want to go to that theater show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I wish we'd, unfor- someone I think videotaped, for some reason, we did it three nights in a row uh, at a theater in Boulder, sold out every night. I think it, the theater held about 250 people. So we had almost a thousand people see it. Plus we had some previews. It really was a great, show i there you can see the behind the scenes documentary that i made about it. i was like i was i was crazy that was back when i was really crazy and i was i never slept at all so while i was helping to write and direct and produce this friggin' thing i was also making a documentary about our making it wow so i was sometimes having to direct and work with the with the with the uh the crew um while i was filming that at the same wow. time. but um Unfortunately, yeah, the actual show itself, I don't think is out there in any way. And, you know, it was theater. It was, you know, that's what theater is. It's, yeah. it's supposed to be like, you know. It probably, You're just going to have to bring it to Ohio and do it again. <laughs> I would, you know, I, re- I would love to. I mean, I've, I've been trying to connect with some different groups out here. Obviously, it's been very, very difficult now with lockdown. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Stepped away from that because it's just not going to happen right now. But, um, yeah, I would love to do another project like that for sure. For sure. That'd be awesome. Do you want to talk about uh, Michael, the artist, and see how you got connected with him and give us a little rundown on his style and stuff? Yes, thank you for bringing that up. It's rare anybody gives any real credit to Mikey because he, obviously, <laughs> his contribution was so uh, inestimable. Um, I, I don't think I pronounced that word correctly, but you know what I meant. Hey, I gotcha. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so Michael Bracco is the illustrator of the book, uh, along with everything else that I've talked about, about why people should definitely check it out kids of Winnie Jr. I take over the world is that the illust- that we have 10 beautifully rendered really well done uh illustrations that go with the book um and the storyline and uh I actually um like I said before my wife and I after we met Lawrence Kansas we moved to Baltimore Maryland and uh I was the senior reporter for the Baltimore Jewish Times one of the oldest Jewish newspapers in the country nice um and I wow. got to meet a lot of different people in the community there I, I Boulder Baltimore is another place that I just really love I had a lot of fun yes we used to see John Waters all the time he really is it's like Dave Chappelle like it's just like <laughs> John's just out at coffee shops and things and like well, the difference is <laughs> he's dressed like John Waters and it's just like, <laughs> like he's wearing the John Waters costume wherever you go like there's clearly that's John Waters um but uh anyway so we I lived in Baltimore for we lived in Baltimore for a while and I became friends with a lot of people in the community through uh, writing for the news one of the newspapers and one of them was this great guy Sam Gallant who was the radio DJ for kind of like the indie rock uh station really cool everybody listened to it WTMD I think it was and uh, he and I just really hit it off. He became one of my best friends. And we stayed in touch with him even when I left Baltimore. Um, and at a point, I was trying to do a different graphic novel project and was asking around to different friends around the country that I knew, do you know anybody that could work with me who's an illustrator? Because uh, I wanted to find somebody that, that I could develop a project with. And Sam connected me to Mikey. Mikey loved what I had written for this particular project. Um, uh, so much that he he and I worked together on character sketches and so forth. He did 12 sample pages of this graphic novel 
took him months to do. He did it completely for free. He just really believed in the project. Okay, and that thing yeah. ended up, that graphic novel with the samples and everything that Mikey put into it ended up not happening. And it was what? very disappointing for both of us. Um, I had had an agent who had made it pretty clear that if we can get 12 sample pages done, he'd be able to sell it because he too really liked the story and everything. And Mikey's illustrate, Mikey's the, the, the page, the sample pages were stunning. I mean, there's no question they were stunning and he did everything, the coloring and, and everything. It was, it looked like something that was ready to, to friggin' come out. And this agent just decided not to, he was actually the agent of a friend of mine and he ended up dropping her later too. And she said that he was a bit of a dick and, Sometimes you run into these people. It is what it is. Anyway, <laughs> so after I sold the Kids of Whitney High book, that proposal, the company, Schiffer, they've been great in a lot of ways, but they are small and limited. And they said, if I wanted the illustrations in it, I would have to find my own guy and pay for it myself. And so I went back to Mikey and I said, you know, I feel so bad that you put all this time and energy into this project that ended up not happening do you want to jump onto this one that I sold, like it's coming out, like we're doing it and I need illustrations. Do you want to do that? And he said, yeah. And um, he quoted me a price. We made a deal. He was really cool about it. Basically charged me very little up front. And then he's going to be getting some profit shares on the back end to make up for what I owe him, which is, um, you know, a, a, a nice chunk of change and he deserves it. And I wanted to have it. Um, but we, we worked out that deal and, uh, he's been great. And he also is a comics creator himself. Uh, definitely look him up. Um, Michael Bracco, B-R-A-C-C-O. He also so. goes by Spaghetti Kiss and uh, he's got a website. He does all this stuff with t-shirts and hats. He's really into monsters and things normally in particular and aliens. And he does all these like online workshops on how to draw monsters really fast and like quick draw right. type stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, and he also, totally by coincidence, I learned about this later, he not only is a junior high school art teacher, but he also teaches a lot of special ed kids. So he was also really helpful and perfect for- Stars I mean, aligned, dude. Yeah, I mean, it was just he, and I talked with him about just what junior high school students are into at the time and that kind of thing. And so he was helpful in a lot of ways. We have actually never met in person. We have only <laughs> spoken over the phone a few times. We've spoken mostly over text and email. Um, but we have together birthed this thing and we're both extremely proud of it. He is so delighted by the response and really proud of it as well. And, um, he received a check already for three cents, uh, <laughs> which makes me jealous. Where's my three cent check? Um, so, although I will say to, to, to swing from that funny little moment, although that's true, um, there's another aspect to the book that we're really proud of, which is that a portion of the profits go to a nonprofit in LA called LA Goal, uh, G-O-A-L, G-O-A-L, yeah. Um, they've been around for 50 years, five zero. They've been helping people with disabilities for all that time. <clears throat> they did the artwork, some of the clients there did the artwork for the third Kids of Whitney High album, Actor Age. And we've worked with them from time to time over the years as well. They've been hit really hard by the pandemic and lockdown. So anyone still listening to this thing right now means you're probably pretty passionate and interested in what we're talking about. Please look up LA goal. Yes. If you have the resources, please help them out. They really need it right now. Um, they're having all different kinds of difficulties. Um, and you know, um, portion of the profits of this book go to them, but even outside of buying a book or two, um, which, which helps them out, you know, if you want to help directly, they certainly could use it right now. And if you're in the Los Angeles area, somehow and listening to this, um, and you want to do any kind of volunteering or whatnot, they would be a great organization to look into and really, really need the help. 
and it'd be such a shame if, if they weren't able to stick it out because yeah. they, like I said, they've been around for 50 years. They just celebrated their 50th anniversary. So wow. literally 50 years. And um, <clears throat> I'm not cheering up. I'm just um, got the plum in my throat. <laughs> but uh, they're a great organization. People should check them out as well. So anyway. So you get a lot with this book. So a proceed goes to a phenomenal organization. And then I do believe you get music with it too, don't you? Yeah. You believe correctly. Uh, we were able to work out. I didn't even know if this was possible. And I kind of <laughs> just left it up to the publisher to figure out how to do it. Um but on the back cover, they did, a, a, they speak of phenomenal. They really did do an incredible job of the design of the book. The actual yes, book it is. is gorgeous. And even beyond Mikey's fantastic illustrations and some of which they integrated into like the cover and whatnot, just the way that the book looks and the, the pages and the inner art and everything, they, they did a sensational job. Uh, but they also, at my request, uh, there's a barcode on the back cover um, it's a hardcover book, and you can scan it with your device, and you can download three free Kids of Whitney High songs. Yeah. And that's something else that we're really, really proud of. And like I said, I was honestly not even sure if that was possible, but I kind of kept talking with them about it. And it really was, I think at one point they thought I was going to figure it out. And I'm like, no, you guys. Like, there was a lot of like, they were like, oh, send us the barcode and the this and that. Like, I don't know how to do anything. I don't know that. <laughs> you guys did. And so there was a little bit of an awkward moment. But you know what? They made it happen and it worked. So, yes, uh, when you buy the Kids of Winnie Junior High Take Over the World, you are helping out a nonprofit that can really use it. You are getting three Kids of Winnie High songs. You are getting an interview in the back with a wow. Kids of Winnie member talking about why representation like this and a book like this is so important. In addition to you know, the one thing that never gets talked about when I'm talking about this book, which is it's a really fun story that I think makes people yes. laugh and the characters are well-developed. And I spent a lot of time and energy in making sure this was not just, you know, some posturing and a lot of, you know, pontificating and lecturing that it is a story first and foremost about these characters going on adventures, all uh, Goonies or Calvin and Hobbes or Rugrats, or, or some of our other favorite, you know, shows and movies over the years, and, and books, um, you know, Fudgemania, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I was really influenced by all these different books, things, again, Lewis Sacker in particular, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. If you like those books, I think you'll really like these books, um, and it's okay to read it, even if you don't have kids, because <laughs> I just said, I'm I it. love reading that stuff sometimes. You know, I think, you know, some if anything anyone else is getting out of listening to this right now, it might surprise some people, but I can tell you, and I'm not the only writer I know who does this, reading Roald Dahl is really helpful. And I reread and reread and reread Roald Dahl over the years. Like I probably read Matilda like 15 friggin' times. That is not yeah. just a book for children. That is a really, really well-written book. The language is fantastic. He's so economical with his words. He's so good with character development and with story development and with making things scary, but still in like a childlike way. Um, and you know, not being too saccharine or cloying with some of the messaging. Um, it is, it is such an amazing book. Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, I would say the same thing. Just an incredible book. The Witches, incredible book. I mean, just reading Roald Dahl, it's not just for children anymore that like, yeah. again, Judy Bloom or Lewis Sacker, or some of these other people we're talking about. I mean, I've probably read Phantom Tollbooth again, like 20 times. And it's just a great, really smart, really funny, well-written book that happens to be accessible to younger readers too yep. heck yeah all right let's do some rapid fire get to know matt 
All right. So since this is a comic book podcast, so what is your favorite comic book movie? My favorite comic book movie. I, I really do love Batman Returns. And as I think we talked about in our last discussion, I was saying, I really do feel this way. One of my favorite, if not favorite scenes in all of cinema ever is when uh, Bruce Wayne and um, Selena Kyle realize that the other one, who, who the other one is when they're dancing, just the ah. cinematography. The fact that I years later realized they're the only ones not wearing costumes and they're, they're, talking about you know um that's such an amazing scene but i realized after i said all that and everything i just said is true and i really do love that movie as i love the first batman as well they're my they're my favorite batmans along with the animated series but um is you know i i never really think about this as a comic book but we have to remember that it was technically a comic book i would have to go with robocop 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 ah, I buy that. Ah. I mean, you know <laughs> robocop is is the movie man i mean no one's like, mentioned that yeah, well, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I am a huge, huge Paul Verhoeven fan. I think that the yes. man can do no wrong. I have actually had an experience not only to interview him, but to interview him in person. And nice. he is a fucking crazy person in the best possible <laughs> way. I, it's still one of my most memorable interview experiences I've ever had. He was awesome. amazing. Um, I am absolutely a showgirls apologist, as is my wife. <laughs> in the theaters, we've seen it on uh, at home. I have to tell everybody right now, it really is, I'm not just saying this, I think one of the best movies of the year and one of the best documentaries that's come out in a long time. There's a documentary that just came out about showgirls called You Don't Know Me, N-O-M-I, of course. Okay. And it is just a really, really well-made documentary. And the fact they were able to do something like that for showgirls is a incredible and b very gratifying and made my wife and i go we knew we were right this movie's amazing um so i would have to go with robocop and before i i, I go i know this is rapid fire just i love telling this story do it but do um it. when i was at film school at usc uh and sorry i'm just gonna say it for contextual reasons which some would say or at least at the time was the best film school you can go to so you know top top program i'm in the screenwriting program there um, and we one day had a substitute teacher and it was one of the writers of RoboCop. Um, I think his name was Michael Miner. Uh, uh, okay. I could be wrong, but anyways, one of the, one of the writers of RoboCop, there was like two or three and he, we started talking about RoboCop just in class and it was amazing. I'm, I'm in, I'm in film school. I'm in college. We're talking about RoboCop with one of the guys who wrote RoboCop. And this is a movie we used to watch at slumber parties. We were watching oh, yeah. RoboCop when we were way too young for it. I remember how traumatized I was when you see the guy get shot up by the Ed 209. Yes. I mean, that's like, that's, I'm never gonna be able to take that in my head. So I had to learn how to embrace it. Otherwise my life would be horrible. From Forget that. that, how about what's his name from ER melting and then having oh, his God. body yeah. splashed yeah. all over the yeah. windshield. <laughs> oh man, Paul is the best. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so I, I, so we're sitting there, we're talking to the guy who wrote, one of the guys who wrote Robocop and he actually says, and, I, and again, like, proven right again that this is an incredible film for a number of reasons he goes you guys know what i was what i was reading when i was writing robocop and we go no what were we reading he goes philosophy he goes that uh, whole movie is about the self and identity and the mind and who are we as humans and who are, he goes i was reading hardcore philosophy and really understanding memory and, yeah. and perception and we were just like you're incredible, man. And I knew that that movie was great. So yeah, so I'm going to go, I'm going to put Batman, the Michael Keaton Batman's on hold for a second. I'm going to say Robocop is my favorite. Good pick. I like it. Nice. Like it. I oh. like it. What's the last show that you binged watched? Rainier Werner Fossbender's Eight Hours Don't Make a Day. An incredible German miniseries from the late 70s 
that is unlike anything else Fassbender has ever done. I am one of the people who feels that Fassbender is the best filmmaker who's ever lived. Berlin Alexander Platz, all 15 and a half hours of it is the best movie ever made. I think it's the Ulysses of cinema, absolutely without a doubt. Nice. And uh, I had never seen before, it's on the Criterion channel now, uh, eight hours uh, uh, don't make a day. And it is just this working class family and it's done in a very optimistic, lighthearted way that is totally contrapuntal to anything that Fassbender's ever done, which are usually the most bleak, depressing, sad, like <laughs> Lars Venture, eat your heart out type films, but done very, very well and very, very truthfully. And yet he made this extremely kind of bright and effervescent film about this working class family that really turns tropes about corporations on its head and the way that workers work with their bosses and the way that people are dealing with bureaucracy and legalities. It's almost like an anti-Kafka in a way that right. I found extremely refreshing and unique. Every time I thought something bad was gonna happen, something good would happen, and it was almost provocative uh, in that way. Like he was sort of playing with, instead of this being a soap opera, it's like an opposite soap opera. I can't really describe it any other, any other way than that. And because it's a Fassbender project, it just looks amazing. The acting is some of the best acting you've ever seen. The dialogue is completely spot on. And there are moments that are gonna make you cringe and laugh and cry and feel things that you didn't think uh, a film or TV show can make you feel. So uh, if anyone has the Criterion channel or can get this on Criterion, I would highly recommend Eight Hours Don't Make a Day by the master himself, Fassbender. Hell yeah. Can you tell us, like, you've mentioned all the different places that you've lived. Mm -hmm. And obviously New York City New York City is great for this. Can you tell us what's your favorite takeout? Like a specific place or like a kind of food? Kind of food. Absolutely Chinese. I I have a, a, a very I have a real serious problem. Uh, I've been to rehab for it more than more than two or three <laughs> times. I'll, I'll see Robert Downey Jr. there a couple of times actually, give each other high fives for Chinese food and for specifically for combination fried rice. No <laughs> onion. But I cannot get enough combination fried rice because it's delicious. Even when they do it badly, it's kind of, it's one of those things that's hard to screw up. Even right. if it's really greasy <laughs> or really dry, I don't care. It's still just this, this mess of all different kinds of food all together. And you, and you scoop into it and you get little nuggets, little, little hidden treasure. Like when you're eating like you know, <laughs> ice cream and, uh, or like old like cereal, you like, you never know what you're going to get in there. And uh, it's just this explosion of kaleidoscopic flavors. Um, and, you know, and I always get, yeah, the combination. So I, I'll tell them everything, scallops, and shrimp, chicken, beef, everything. Put it all yes. in there. Yes. So uh, now I want some Chinese food. Shit. Yeah, yes, oh. you do. Absolutely. <laughs> what is one of your favorite music artists? Besides one of my favorite the, music artists? Besides, besides the kids. <laughs> Brian Jonestown Massacre. If, if again, another recommendation. If anybody else likes Brian Jonestown Massacre, uh, Anton Newcomb, who is who basically is Brian Jonestown Massacre. I mean, he has a band sort of too. It's like he's to Brian Jonestown Massacre what Trent Reznor is to Nine Inch Nails. Um, but uh, he has been for the last few weeks, I think, maybe months, has been putting out almost an entirely new song every day, recording at his home nice. studio. And they are full productions and they are incredible. And, you know, some of them sound kind of similar, but they're all, they're individual songs. And then some of them sound completely different. The man is just a madman and he is filled with so much talent that he clearly 
isn't handling sitting there doing nothing right now right. very well we just decided to channel all that frustration and whatever else into this incredible music and he's it's literally like a song a day you can look up his youtube channel right now and he's and it's all for free and there and it's just he's just putting it out and he's telling everyone please share this like he's telling people to bootleg it basically please share this <laughs> Hell yeah he wants to make music right now and he wants a lot of people to hear it and it's really 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 good it's really really awesome. good so check out Brian Johnson Massacre and Anton Newcomb. And the man is putting out a new song pretty much every day. And they awesome. sound incredible. Sweet. All right, Matt. So if you weren't a writer, what would you be? A chef. Oh. Making some fried rice. What, what, what of, would your what signature dish be? Like, what, what would that be? I'd really, I'd really want to get into um, Brazilian uh, or Argentine uh, cooking. There's something about that that I really like. And um, just things with like, potatoes and fries and eggs and tomatoes and all different kinds of seasoning and spices and again just kind of bring together things that, that people maybe wouldn't think to bring together um Boom. and uh you know yeah i you know those kinds of things i really dig on so and now i'm really hungry <laughs> so all right so if you had to tell someone that has never read you know this book or any so mainly this book how would you sell it to them what would be your pitch uh the kid the, the kids of Winnie Junior High Take Over the World is about a rock band comprised of members with disabilities at a junior high school who go on a series of wacky and wild adventures in the course of getting to what could be a career making show so that they can be seen by a record producer who can in turn hopefully sign them and kickstart their career, which is where the sort of the, the trajectory of the book. So if you're interested in that story of characters who are rambunctious and mischievous and savvy and clever and shrewd and have had to figure out their own ways to do certain things be, in order to overcome unique challenges that they have as individuals and how they are able to channel that into their music and art and expression and connection to each other and to their fans, then this is the book for you. And it's technically for kids. Love that. <laughs> well, Matt, I got to tell you, we put this podcast together to the three of us to reconnect and it's not to become famous or to make any money. <laughs> and, but I got to tell you, man, like just meeting you and listening to you. And these are the stories that we really connect with and connect with people. And it has been an absolute pleasure knowing you and listening to you i fucking love you dude oh i love you guys too Thanks, it's been man. so great you're such an independent spirit and we this podcast is really for guys like you that are on a mission to tell a story and for us to for you to use our platform for good and to spread the word and so we really have we really have appreciated talking to you thank you so much Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. That was the one and only Matthew Clickstein. Yeah, that was a great interview with him. I really enjoyed talking with him. And he was just, again, his conviction and his knowledge of, of, of his work and his full intention of putting out this book is really, really something that was inspiring. And I'm glad I got a chance to talk to him and hear from him. So that was a great, great interview with him. And uh, Rob, I got to say, man, when we were doing the first interview with him, when you were... Uh there live it's a bitch to try to do a live interview with a mask on i, mm -hmm. I gotta tell you man kudos to you and uh i struggled to keep that damn thing on my face so uh yeah the kids of woodley junior high take over the world please 
buy it, get it, support it. It's a really, really cool. Like I said, I'm about ch- I'm on chapter three and I've already I already like it. I and I well, and I I, I I hope he is working on another comic book, to be honest with you. And that was another cool thing about the interview. I bought another trade of You Are Obsolete and it's in the mail right now for Mr. Mazik to check out because he hasn't Thank read you. It. Yeah. No, need to get that checked out. I guess a, a little comment. Um something he had mentioned when we did the interview this summer for You Are Obsolete. Right at the end, when we were talking with Gib, he was kicking himself because he usually likes to promote the local shop, the local comic shop, the local bookstore. And I think it's fair to say that is his preference versus doing something like Amazon. Yes. Um, However, that being said, um, I do think if Amazon is the only option, I still think it would be good to pick it up since a good uh, portion of the proceeds you know, goes to the charity that, you know, he mentioned in the interview there. LA Gold. Um, Yeah. And at current checks of the Amazon, it would appear that you can get it by Tuesday. Nice. Um, So looks like they have it, but uh, some of the shops don't. So I think he came in and you only had four available from the publisher. And I know we bought three of them. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're listening to this, kids, uh, laughing or may may have one left, <laughs> but I'm not sure. May, <laughs> may. All right, so uh, you guys want to shift it to the old comic book news because I mean that's what we do this for anyway. <laughs> we got lots of big news this week. I was so excited this week. I didn't know what to do with myself because the third and final book of the Three Jokers came out this week. Did you guys pick that up yet? Oh man. I have not read it. Rob has not read it, so he will have no insight on this conversation, but I read it. Like, I I couldn't wait to crack that damn thing open. So do I I need to, like, do I need to step away from the mic, or, you know, are you going to ruin shit for me? No, I'm not going to ruin anything for you, but I will tell you that the book does such a great job, especially this last third. It it builds up to it, because we're trying to figure out. It does build up to it, starting with the first book. And this final book, the final pages, there's a part of the story that we're familiar with, but it interjects a part of the story that we didn't know about. Yeah. Yes. And it takes pages from directly from the killing joke, insert something that we did not, we had no clue about. So much so that I had to read it twice. The last two pages, I had to read it twice just to make sure, did I really just, is this really? I know I talked to you on the phone uh, after you were, I think you were getting ready or you just finished it and you said that you read the last page twice and I literally did the exact same thing. Like, did I really just understand this? Is this part really happening? Did that, yeah. So I'm wondering if this is like going to be canon for Batman now, which I hope it is. I hope well, it is. Killing Joke was made canon. Yeah, and it, that wasn't intentional either. I mean, f- Barbara Gordon was in a wheelchair because of a, of a story that wasn't supposed to be canon. It was supposed to be an Elseworld. Um, I think we can just go ahead and uh, put disclaimers out there. We'll just say um, spoiler alerts. Do we want to reveal this, Mark, or no? No, no. <laughs> Rob's like no. All right, well, no. we'll we'll share it. We'll share the final, final, final review of the Three Jokers Part Three on the next episode. So it it is it is pretty badass. 
So it is, it's excellent. And it's so funny because, you know, and I've said this before, but I'm really, my prayers are being answered and I'm really attracting this to myself because my first dive into Batman was my, was Owls. Yeah, about, that so was that was legit your first dive. That was my first legit my first dive, legit. And then right after that, man, thing, I'm failing you as a friend, man. Like, right. That that's the <laughs> that's your first dive. My first for real dive. Oh, and so man. after Owls came Hush, and after Hush, I was like, man, I'm never gonna find another artist combination with Batman. Oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Then bam, three Jokers came out. And that artist-writer combination was excellent. Like we talked about what they did with Batgirl was just so awesome. And now the next book that I can't wait to come out is the Batman Catwoman series. Uh, apparently it's gonna be a 12 issue miniseries. And I believe it goes on sale December 1st and it's Tom gonna King. be by Tom King. Tom King, yeah. And I'm just so glad that these stories are coming back to back for me because I'm just, I'm loving The Dark Knight. I'm loving Mr. Bruce Wayne. I'm loving his detective skills. And I love him and Catwoman's dynamic and relationship in Hush. So I think that they probably... Um, Phone's on silent. God damn it. Sorry. They're, <laughs> sorry about that. They'll probably expand on that more. And I can't wait for that book to come out. So, because apparently this book is going to focus more on their relationship. So that's Batman, yeah. Catwoman, and it comes out December 1st, I believe. And, and is it going to be Clay, Clay Man is going to be the artist? You I know? think so. Um, so uh, hold Mark, on a second. I want to say something before I forget. Um, we were, Cole and I were watching some uh, previews on YouTube and uh, we came across, uh, you know, he wanted to see the Justice League preview from the fandom that we already discussed on the show. And we came across the... Uh, the history of the D of DC comics. And I, I can't remember what, I can't remember if that was what, which movie that was with. I don't know if it was on the Blu-ray of Batman V Superman or something, but it, it's, it's on one of those Snyder movies. And uh, Neil Adams made the comment that you can get the world's best artist and the world's best writer, and they will create the world's best comic book that you will love. And I, immediately I'm like, that's Mark. It's got to be yeah. world-class writer, world-class artist, and he's going to get a world-class comic book. Because I'll talk about it to the day I die. I don't do no off-brand, one, two, three, little artist, writer, no. I want the best of the best, and I will blow that book up and buy that book for multiple for multiple copies for other people. That's how much I love it. And yeah. I mean, you see how I am. When I get on a book, I'm on it because it's just so good and I have to talk about it and I want to promote it for them because it's just so good. So yeah, I'm all about the world-class writer and world-class artist. Rob, what so, do you want to say? Because I got something else to say. Uh, I'll actually come back to it later. Um, so. Speaking of uh, new comics coming out, uh, Tom King, uh, I loved him on Batman at first, probably up to 25. And uh, I'm anxious to see how the Batman and Catwoman thing go, because th that was a big part of his story was their relationship and how they played off each other. And it was a whole lot of, hey, bat, hey, cat, back and forth banter. Tom King had another book come out recently, probably about two weeks ago. I don't know when this is going to air, but Rorschach. He's writing a, a standalone Rorschach title. Is that the um, black label? It is under black label. It is a 12 issue miniseries. Uh, I've read issue one. It's different. It's not, it's not bad. Um, I'm anxious to see where he goes with it. Um, I know that he's going to, it's centered around politics. 
it's centered around kind of a mystery murder uh like i'm not going to spoil it uh i'd like to get uh rob reading it and kind of get his impressions of it um i know there was a controversy centered around um this book before it even came out because uh the artist the one and only artist that worked with paul jenkins on the inhumans jolly did a alternate variant cover for issue one and i'm not going to get into all the the drama that was associated with it so there was like unnecessary drama uh around this title uh from the get-go i'm gonna give it a chance tom king i think is a excellent writer um i think in my humble opinion i'm not a professional critic but kind of like what mark says all the time like i I gotta love it i love what you're going with and i think tom king gets in his own way sometimes when he's writing like interesting he's very he's very detailed he's good sometimes he just he does not he doesn't explain a lot of stuff like he'll just leave a lot of open-ended shit and then you got to just try to figure it out um that was kind of my problem with towards the end of his batman run where it was going and the sales seemed to support that so he was supposed to get 100 issues and was off it before that obviously and batman's badass now with james tinian um i'm willing to i'll probably check out the the batman catwoman like you said so um i'm excited to pick that up boy we got so i have just a month to, to pick that up so yeah i'm really excited to get that um we've had some big movie news some movie big tv news. show and movie news so oscar isaac is apparently in talks to play the character moon knight moon knight Disney plus rob who did TV who series. did you in the casting call episode you had oscar isaac for somebody didn't you Oof, you're asking me too quick mm. let me refer to my uh i remember really you, um, i had oscar isaac as wolverine i think didn't i maybe yeah yeah because we, yeah, we were recasting x-men that's right and somebody was like ah he's already played apocalypse i'm like i don't give a shit i think he, i still think y'all should have agreed with me <laughs> but i think oscar isaac is a great hit the nail on the head casting i mean his look you know i think you know moon knight he is actually i don't know a whole lot about him i know a little bit about him because he was actually a west coast avenger for a short time he was marvel's batman wasn't it in a sense yes because he was he had he was a billionaire and he used his money to um rip off (laughs) excuse me no no (laughs) to finance his his mission his gadgets his vehicles um, so he, Moon Knight is an actually, he's a, he was a CIA, ex-CIA agent. He was a missionary and he actually. Missionary or mercenary? Oh, crap. Mercenary. Excuse Big me. difference there. <laughs> he was a mercenary. Excuse me. Sorry about that. He was a mercenary. Praise Jesus. I'm going to go Praise kill God. some people now. <laughs> he was a mercenary and he is inhabited by the Egyptian god Honshu. Mm-hmm. And so that's how he is endowed with some super strength and super speed and his abilities. And so he already knew how to fight because he was a mercenary and an ex-CIA right. agent and all that. So he had he was endowed with some superpowers there. But I'm excited. I think that's a, I mean that's an awesome awesome casting. I, yeah. Oscar Isaac. He's one of my favorite actors. He was in a movie called A Most Violent Year that I liked. Um, so I think he's a great actor. He, we know him now. He's been big in the Star Wars franchise. Yes. And so <clears throat> I'm looking, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with this. And it's, it's going to appear on the Disney Plus streaming 
service, and that's going to be be part of the uh, Marvel television line. So I'm looking at this image from Screen Rant, and I'm telling you, there's like three characters that come to mind when I'm looking at this Moonlight, Moon Knight, excuse me. Moonlight. <laughs> Moonlight. Uh, he looks like it's the late, original. Gentlemen, it's late. <laughs> Azrael mixed with Ragman mixed with the vision. I don't know. Mix in there. But I mean, I mean, his character has evolved. And I think that, um, I think that he'll, I think he'll be a, I think it'll be a good casting. I'm excited to see what they do with it. I mean, what do you all think? I see it. Yeah. Anywho, just thought I'd (laughs) share that. Anywho. Also, Jared Leto is returning as the Joker. Say what? Yeah, yeah I heard that. Cat, he's returning. Man, I've been watching. Uh, so, you guys ever get on a uh, a, a binge of Looper uh, YouTube oh, yeah. channel? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. They did. Uh, you know, mojo.com Yeah, obviously, I've been watching a lot of jo- uh, Zack Snyder Justice League stuff, and uh, I know we dropped last time that they're everybody's pretty much coming back to film additional scenes and stuff like that. And uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> Looper. No. Do they get paid a second time? I don't know. Fuck, what what, what were you saying? I, I, I had something in my head that reminded me of it. Well, Jared Leto's returning Jared as Leto. the Joker. Speaking of, of villains, yeah, Jared Leto's going to return, which makes sense because Ben Affleck made that little short appearance in the Suicide Squad. Um, but it sounds to me like everybody is getting killer way more screen time. Like Lex Luthor is going to have a lot more screen time uh hopefully we got some Shit, best- that's the one person who leads less screen time just saying i don't know so there's that and then hopefully we get some more death stroke hopefully that ending sequence um you know plays out more i don't know man the the, the more that this gets built up the more it sounds like we're gonna get probably like I don't know. I, I I heard from that Looper installment that it was going to be six parts, and every every uh, chapter or episode is going to be a cliffhanger. And who knows, man? This might just blow up, and we might get more of it. I don't know. I'm just uh, again, we're not going to dwell on this. We've discussed it at length and nauseum on this show, but I'm just excited to just be getting it in general. So, do we have a more concrete release date? No, I don't think so. It's still saying 2001, so it'll probably be like a year from now. It'll probably be like Christmas, Christmas ish, the Christmas ish, or somewhere probably in the fall. Um, but I know that a lot of movies have been pushed back almost a whole year. So hopefully, Wonder Woman still comes out on Christmas, and uh, I don't know. I know that uh, like this is totally off topic for us, but I know like Top Gun Maverick was supposed to be out this past June. Yeah, that got pushed to next June or next summer. So like a whole entire, nobody wants to pull the trigger on these movies, man. They're going to lose too much money. I know they're going to lose money. People aren't going to go to the theaters. I get it. I get it. So I know that, and, uh, you know, the last thing we need is all these production studios to bring out their own streaming service. Yeah. Paramount yeah. plus plus. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you. Everybody's got to have their own platform nowadays. But uh, I know that uh, I read an article that Warner Brothers was considering doing the uh, the Wonder Woman at home stream, possibly. I mean, I'd do that. I, get I it. mean, it would probably be like what, you know, Mulan and some of these other releases yeah. were. You'd end up paying like 
20 almost 30 i mean i'd pay 30 i'd pay 30 dollars to stream it i I would i mean i probably i would still save i'd save on going to the movies and buying that's how much it costs just to get a soda and a popcorn so right so i mean if i can if i can rent stream it a brand new movie for thirty dollars and sit on the couch and pause it and go to the bathroom and come back here's the other thing i think mr mazik should definitely take advantage if wonder woman is streaming that way he doesn't have to throw away his chocolate cake he can just eat it or the peanut butter pie is that what it was, it was peanut butter oh, please. <laughs> so you could just go home and devour uh. that on your couch sir please. you can't bring that you cannot bring that in here you have to throw that away Oh, I should enough went back to the trash can to see if it was still in there. Remember that? <laughs> yep, it wasn't. I would have took it out too. <laughs> I don't care. I would have walked away. I don't know who this fella is. <laughs> I would have ate it too. <laughs> but I'm curious to see how they work in Jared Leto. I'm curious to see how they do that. You know what I'm saying? So I'm really excited. And plus, because it's going to be four hours, one hour a week. I think this is how they're going to do it. I'm curious to see is how they're going to work him in. So that's really, um, I'm really looking forward to that. I'm anticipating how they're going to do that. And I think that's going to be great. And I'm really excited for that. I am too. Also, just in case you didn't think that it was possible, but superheroes can get sick. And a superhero, one of our favorites, actually got sick. Stephen Amell actually tested positive and actually had a case of COVID. Yep. A couple well, of weeks ago. Judging, I listened to his interview with Rosenbaum. Um, yeah. It didn't sound like, he, I think in the end he described it as a mild case. It did not sound like a mild case to me. Yeah. It sounded I mean, like it was pretty fucking rough. It's if it, he said for two days, he, says, he said like Tuesday, Wednesday, it was rough. He, he said by Friday, through his clothes and stuff. Yeah, he said by Friday he was feeling great. So, I mean, to be isolated and to be by himself and, you know, that's pretty... I don't think there's a mild hard. case ever. If you get it, it's it's it should be taken seriously. And, uh, and he's in excellent shape, you know, but I'm sure that that right. helped as far as, you know, lessening the symptoms or the the duration of his symptoms you know so yeah i'm glad that he's feeling better and he's back on the man he's currently feeling heels but he was saying that you know if stuff if this continued if stuff starts to go down and he's back in vancouver he said he called greg berlanti he was like let's do an arrow season nine did you well, hear because he wanted to work he's like i'm yeah. in canada we might as well work right so i thought that was pretty cool but also i didn't know this Speaking, going back to comics, and I actually read this because I saw a panel on it. I had, and I knew that they were close, but I didn't. I don't follow them all that much. But did you know Harlan Quinn and Poison Ivy are married? I didn't know they were married. I know they were somewhat of an item. They, there's a the panel. Uh, this, their issue. They, 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 they got married. Okay. When? What's the context? Um, oh, I forgot the issue. Hold on one second. I can find it, but they are, they, can you look that up? They got married. Okay, this is from Screen Rant from October 24th, 2020. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy are officially married in DC's Injustice. The longtime partnered Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy had made their marriage official with their wedding now confirmed in DC's Injustice. The modern fandom of DC Comics may still be catching up on the idea that Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy are more than just friends, but the longtime lovers have officially tied the knot in DC's Injustice Year Zero series, and now the readers are finally able to witness the wedding 
providing for themselves, the ceremony doesn't disappoint. For as progressive and unrestrained as Harley Quinn has proven in modern comics, ditching the Joker's abuse and finding a life and family of her own, the acceptance of her romantic relationship with Pamela Isley, Poison Ivy has been resisted by both editorial and readership, at least in terms of official canon. Harley and Ivy's friendship have been viewed with uncharacteristic, I don't know, reducing the the winks, nudges, or even outright confirmation of their years-long sexual relationship to edgy humor. But in Injustice Universe, writer Tom Taylor has cut through canon to confirm Harley and Ivy's love led them straight down the aisle in marital bliss. So, sure. Okay. I thought that was interesting. I wasn't expecting that. I knew that they were partners. I didn't know that, not romantically. I knew that they were like, you know, criminal partners, but I didn't know that they were romantic partners. So I, when I saw that, I was like, holy smokes. But good for them. I hope they're happy. <laughs> and make believe land. <laughs> yeah. That's all the news I got. Um. Oh, also, I don't know if you guys saw this, but they did a Dark Knight action figure and they did a Hush action figure. There's a lot of them, yeah. yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, I've seen it over the years. Um, I was thinking about, there's one for Hush, which I was thinking about getting it, but I don't know what I would do with it. <laughs> Look at it in the box. Yeah. <laughs> Look at it on card. All right, speaking of Hush, do we want to uh, review that at length or do we want to just do a quick breeze? <laughs> I know we talked about reviewing it on previous episodes and maybe start to dive into story arcs that really, really speak to us. And, you know, well, this is going to be the first episode where we did that. So let's, let's roll. Oh, actually, I, get... I have a little bit of more news, actually. <laughs> Control, Alt, Delete. Rewind. Go ahead, Mark. What's your other news? So I finished the Marvels podcast and it's 10 episodes and it it is narrated, scripted and narrated. And it goes, oh, the story is about the first time. This is the aftermath after Galactus has tried to invade Earth Mm -hmm. and the Fantastic Four stop him. And the story behind the aftermath, oh my gosh, it's excellent. I told you uh, Method Man. Do you have the official comics for the backdrop? No, no, I don't. Okay. So Method Man, the rapper, is does the voice of Ben Urich, the reporter. Oh, my gosh. And Fantastic Four is in it. X-Men is in it. Because this is centered around August 4th, 1966. Mm-hmm. So they're just discovering, you know, the X-Men, the Avengers, Fantastic Four. And it's just, it's an awesome, awesome scripted. I mean, every day I listen to it. They're about 20 minutes, 25 minutes um, each episode and there's 10 and I finished it every single day and man, I couldn't wait to get up the next morning and listen to it on the train ride to work. Now Marvel's also has another one. It's, and I'm currently listening to season two. It's called Wolver- Marvel's Wolverine, The Lost Trail. Okay. Hmm. And I just finished the first episode on that one and it's excellent. It's another narrated scripted podcast and i'm telling you i absolutely love them because it's as i'm sitting there on the train i'm just picturing the story and it's just so well articulated and it's just it just really the whole train ride could go by and i'm like oh i've already got my stop because i'm just so engrossed into the story it's just so well written and it's just i love it and it almost makes me like i said before i like the they did back in the 20s and the 30s where you sit around the radio yeah that's totally how it is and that's I love that. I love that. I love that more than tele. I like it. I actually like it more than TV. <laughs> more than TV. Pull on those. Uh, I agree with that because nostalgia. That, but 
it lets you kind of just imagine a lot of the stuff. It brings in your imagination. Like, where is he standing? What's the background look like? What's the weather like? What's the lighting like? I think it it plays into your graphic novel sense of trying to imagine the scenery. Right. And I think, it, I think it works really, really well. So, yeah, I still need to check that out. Uh, like yeah, I'm loving it. Last episode, I always need something... Something I hope you do that. check it out, Rich. Seriously, the Marvels podcast, I think you'd like I really think you should check it out. I really want you to. Now, is this the is this similar to the Batman one you talked about previously? I think it's going to be because that the Batman one has to come out. Yes, yeah, coming out next year, but I think that's this is how it's going to be. Yeah. Gotcha. Story, old series. Story time, story time podcast episodes. Like it. Right. All right. So uh what do we officially want to call this segment on our show? Book review corner. <laughs> Comic book story arc review. Mm, top arc. Top arc. I like that. I like that. Yeah, we'll go with that. The Woodford Reserve is speaking. The Woodford yeah. All right, top arc, first official arc to be reviewed. Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee's Batman Hush. Mark is a super fan. So I'll be honest with you. I mean, I know I've talked a lot about uh, 608. I mean, it was like my number one when we did our top 10. Yep. There are just some story arcs and significant moments in comic history that to me, in my mind, and maybe you guys relate to this, maybe you don't, it like gets stuck as always in the category of that just came out. Yeah. It, it, like, oh, yeah, that, that just came out. After reading it, it didn't feel like it was, I mean, how, how old are we talking here now? Are we going on 15? came now? out in 2003. Whew. 2003. But man, the story is so good and so it's so well put together. It feels like it came out last week. Yeah, I, I remember. Mean, I remember that was almost twenty years ago. That's insane. It is. I I remember when Daredevil came out on Netflix, and I saw that Jeff Loeb was an executive producer. Like when that fir- when the theme song first kicked off, and I saw Jeff Loeb's name, I was like, "This is gonna fucking rock!" Like mm-hmm. immediately, I'm like, "This is gonna be a badass show" because he's involved in this. Well. And my memory may be betraying me here. Wasn't Jeff Loeb one of the comic advisors on Heroes before it went to shit? I believe believe so, yes. Yeah. Like, he was one of the comic people, quote-unquote. They got fired, and then the show took a nosedive. Yep. Well, I don't know if he was fired. I think we've said it before on the show. It was a victim of the writer strike. So when the writers went on strike, the show took a massive crap on itself um i don't know i i think that uh i I guess we can start by saying uh your comments are are definitely valid rob i i totally agree with that i think that um the thing that was striking to me from the very beginning was i feel that jim lee was had to have in his head like I, i gotta outdo myself and i feel like his creative liberties with the artwork i mean sold this story blew me away and i feel and i say that because like the opening issue with killer croc involved in the kidnapping and just the way that he drew killer croc and i know they worked it into the story where he was kind of mutating a little bit but i i just like to envision the fact that 
this was Jim Lee's interpretation of what Killer Croc would look like. And it, I don't, I, this is just me projecting upon the story, but I feel like this is how Jim Lee would have drawn Killer Croc slightly more crocodile-like. And I feel like maybe they were like, eh, he's kind of mutating just because you draw this character so badass. Um, the one page that I love, it's, the splash page where killer croc is holding the briefcase and batman is dodging his blow and the kid is in it's a full two-page panel and i just feel like jim lee does such an excellent job with all his like details and little nuggets in the story and stuff like that and like catwoman is in the very back of this panel like just creeping along yeah i saw that yeah i remember that like those are like the little little tiny little details in there that I love about Jim Lee. Like if it's from like a little tiny ripped cape to just like how he draws the, the backdrop of a, of a cityscape to tiny little Catwoman creeping on getting ready to steal the briefcase. Like the, so that's, that's my first comment about 608. Well, I guess I I'll we say this. I'll maybe... say this. I like the, uh, another thing about while we're talking about artwork, I loved the, um, memory sequence like it was that black and white color uh watercolor um memory it was real foggy and real just i don't know it was it was beautiful i love it i well, love colors it almost looked like some of those oil chalk yeah like the so this is something i was going to mention i think there are a lot of solid parallels between Hush and the Three Jokers. The specific yeah. historical moments that mm -hmm. are pulled in, like if you can remember there, I think there's two separate panels where it, it's almost like they took from the killing joke Barbara getting shot. Yeah. And then they took, you know, the scene where, you know, Robin is dead and I, it almost the two stories almost supported each other right and i was yeah. like man it's like jeff Loeb knew what they were going to do with three jokers and i of course i i recognize those are significant canon moments for batman but just the relevance of how it impacted him and his perception of how those events impacted barbara and obviously jason um i just thought that there were a lot of parallels between those two those two stories especially since we've been talking about the three jokers so and man can jim lee draw some sexy women i mean catwoman is dynamic poison ivy is crazy and even huntress is just they, he yeah. just man. and it's the old school huntress yes my yeah, favorite man. that's my favorite huntress that's my his drawing of huntress is my absolute favorite. I mean, why is it your absolute favorite, Mark? Because I but, think it looks a lot like another character that you really, really like. Well, that too, but it's just. Are you going to drop just, it? Who is it? A Batgirl. No. Don't you think the old style Huntress looks like Mockingbird? I have to take a closer look. I never thought of that. I mean, look at the, the look, look on at, his face. The answer would be no. Look at their mask. Thought of that. Don't you think their mask looked like identical? Hold on one second. I'm going to take a closer look at this. <laughs> he said, hold on one second. That's why it's his favorite. No, I just think that the way that they they write these these female characters and the way that they're drawn, I think they're just badass icons. And, like, anybody who's like, who the hell's Huntress? Like, badass. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I can see why you would say that, Rich. Yeah. 
Well, I'm glad I could plant that seed for you. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. The mask, at least, is the similarities to... Yeah, Mockingbird. So, Rich, which Hunter Suffers do you prefer? The dark purple and blue or the one that Jim Lee drew? The one that Jim Lee drew. Absolutely, and I'm glad he gave her a cycle, too, a Hunter cycle. That's awesome. And I love that this... I love that particular... The beginning of the book really just... And especially at the, at the end with Catwoman and Poison Ivy, it just builds up. It's just the beginning of something, you know? You can tell, even, you can just tell that something is growing here. And I, I love that sense of it. I just, I mean, I know I just said this, but like the amount of giant double page splash pages that Jim Lee was given in this story, even like the one I already referenced, but like after Bruce's basically unconscious in the gutter and Huntress has to put him in the Batmobile and Alfred's working on him like just all the tech uh, Alfred's you know trying to revive him and get him back and just like all the uh, medical equipment to the background of the cave and it's just it's just stellar in the making it's like Jim Lee knew that this was going to be something crazy and he had to just totally outdo himself and he always seems to fulfill that some of the just in some of the panels of like Lady Shiva and it kind of remind me of Liefeld's glory. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see some, uh, some similar um, artistic expression between those two artists, but I also like the fact that even though we have the, the rogues gallery of villains that premiere in this story that we still create new characters like Tommy Elliott. Mm-hmm. and i feel like i love introducing new characters and get exposed to new characters and i just think that like this was like the perfect opportunity to basically work in somebody that's never been in comics before and use him as a vital part of the story the unspoken like character and again it's been i'll be honest with you guys since 2003 since i've read this and then rereading it here recently, I completely forgot about Harold. <laughs> yeah. Completely forgot about that character in general. Yeah. And that he was even in the story. Sorry. I remember, no, it's okay. As I was reading, talking about Lady Shiva, I remember turning to the page and I'm like, oh shit. Lady <laughs> Shiva, like nobody can. And I mean, Catwoman, she can handle her own, she can kick butt. She but can't man, do nothing to Lady Shiva. <laughs> she can't do no. nothing to Lady Shiva. I'm like, oh shit. Shit. I remember thinking, holy crap, that's fucking Lady Sheba. Like, uh. I mean, I even like the fact that he brought in Amanda Waller into this, like uh, when they were trying to set up Croc and try to find out who's behind all this. I mean, it, it starts with what? Kill, killer Croc, then it goes to Catwoman, and then Catwoman was under Poison Ivy's influence, and then it goes to what? I don't actually have the comics in front of me, so... Well, I'm, I'm and then it goes to Poison Ivy to Superman. Yep, she has Superman under control. And then it goes to Harley Quinn and Joker. Yep. Um, and then... It's Clayface it posing as Jason Todd. Well, then you have uh, Harvey Dent in the background. Correct. You got Rachel Gould. You got Talia. Man, I totally forgot. Like Lex Luthor was president, and that Talia was the head yeah. of Lex Corp. I'm yeah. like, oh man, this is bringing back. That completely days. blew me. Oh yeah, there's a I big. Remember I remember that one. It just 
it just brought back the Lex Luthor presidency. Yeah, that was the early 2000s. Lex Luthor president. <laughs> that was like the Y2K stuff. Yeah, I should see if they got a campaign button for Lex Luthor online. <laughs> sure they do. Um, um, I don't know. If I have to equate this story to one of my favorite TV shows, I kind of and this is not like a superhero show or anything, but just in terms of story writing that really captivates you and really keeps you guessing. It kind of reminds me of the killing where it's like peel it's back not layer like the, after layer after layer. Right. And it's, and it's kind of one of those, you have the same understanding that Batman does, right? It's not like the cookie cutter shows where you know who the villain is and you know, it's kind of like who, who could this be? Like, it's a rogues right. gallery of Batman villains. Who's playing all of them? You know? Yeah. So we go from, I, I really don't think we could say spoiler alerts because this book's almost 20 years old, but like you go from the Joker and Harley Quinn and they gun down Tommy Elliott and then Hush is revealed as Clayface disguised as Jason Todd. And then where does it go from there? I know the final is the Riddler, but like you're left, you're left at the end of this book with Jason Todd's coffin is empty and Mm -hmm. you know that he comes back as the red hood and it just completes that full circle of nobody ever dies in comic books. But well, so the big, the big miss is, but it was Clayface that was Tommy Elliott that Harvey Dent shot in the alley when Joker was framed. So the, Hush is really Tommy Elliot. So Hush the whole time was Tommy Elliot. Correct. And it was Clayface that was masquer- disguised or, or is imitating Jason Todd, but we found out that Jason Todd's coffin was actually empty. And that's right. what starts the whole Red Hood thing. Yes. Okay. And dude, if memory serves, I feel like they picked up the Hush character again in a Batman book. And dude i'm I'm gonna have to do some research but it almost like they turned tommy elliott into a little bitch like it wasn't him and then i don't know we'd have to maybe do a deep dive on that but the at least the way Loeb set it up was harvey dent knew that he was being played Mm -hmm. to the point where he got jim gordon's gun and said this is the gun that's going to shoot Tommy Elliott and what he really meant was on the bridge after you know at the the climactic scene so I don't remember and again it's been almost 20 years and I was quite a younger person then (laughs) I'm trying to remember like I I remember you're just like no fucking way Tommy Elliott and then how did they do it in the animated movie I never saw it did they just say it was the Riddler in the animated movie? Yes. And I was like, what the fuck, yeah. man? They just totally jacked the whole surprise of this. Yeah. So, yeah, it was... Uh, I guess was, I don't remember there being that many cliffhangers. Like, yeah. it was... There was a cliffhanger. You never really found out why Tommy wanted his parents dead. They implied, yeah. like, he wanted the money. But you you didn't really get into that. And Do you remember that, that that panel where he was like, I wasn't mad at you, or what did he say? I'm not mad at you, Bruce. Like, I was mad that... I was mad at your dad for saving my, my mom. Yeah, something like that. Like, what? <laughs> it's like, oh, this, this guy's a 
Class A asshole. Okay. Dude, like, I'm telling you, man, it, those are the those are the stories. The the detective the whodunits are the best. And where you're always like, even when Paul Jenkins said that like we, we knew we had a good mystery on our hands because nobody guessed the ending. And it's like you saw the issue where Tommy Elliott was gunned down by the supposedly by the Joker, and you're just like, damn, that was a quick intro and exit from the story, only to find out that no shit, he's really the guy. I I I I loved this story. Like though well, like there's just not a whole lot of those who done it's anymore. Maybe that's why well, it's refreshing. And I can remember at periods of time during our collecting, comic books became a chore. Like, oh, I got to read these. I got to read these. And it's kind of like you just read it to read it. This you couldn't fucking Batman. wait to open. You couldn't wait to grip that. You couldn't wait to get it off the stand. I know. That's how I felt with Three Jokers. That's how I feel like I'm going to feel with Batman Catwoman. That's how I felt with this, although I bought the trade. But I mean, I couldn't wait to to get into it. But here's the other thing, though. If you think about it, they didn't skim you. Like, you know how you'd like, you get a good book and then it's like eight pages and the rest of it's just shit. Every page like, was awesome. It, it was like every issue was, it felt like a double feature. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was a lengthy, well-written and Jim Lee's art, like there were no shortcuts no. in this story. And I Not think part of what frustrates me with comics is there's a lot of shortcuts i mean even the old school old school um artists back in the beginning like the kirby era they'd be like we make more money if we do like a a centerfold so we're gonna do a centerfold and like it's it's just one panel whereas it's like i think they up the ante the later the series went on i feel that you you interpret certain stories hear me out this might take a minute sometimes you view the artist or the artwork of the story as just the entertainment on top of the overall story but when you get an artist writer combination where the artwork is just as detailed as the writing and it's it's almost explaining even more than the words on the page that's what makes them special so it's like I go back to like I, I always seem to go full circle and go back to Watchmen, but to to reference the nine panel grid, where you could have almost the same thing, but there's so many details within each panel that just goes with the story that just makes it work, and I think that's what makes comics so special. And I get what you're saying, Rob. Sometimes you just get fluff to mm -hmm. carry the words across the page and it's yeah. just entertainment value. But when you get that artwork combination with the story, the artwork is really telling the story over the words. And I just think that Jim Lee is, he's a fucking pioneer, man. He is one of the all time greats, totally dynamic. Just from the spotlights in the background to the fog that floats upon the buildings in a cityscape that this guy does, the, to the cracks in the gargoyle his detail is second to none man and like after reading the three jokers like jason fawbox got it too man he's got yeah. it he's he is 
I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that he's the next Jim Lee, but he's, he's got some skills. I mean, just down to the details of the, the gloves. Like those are the little nitty gritty things that I just like, you feel like you can just reach out and touch it. It's just amazing. And I think that this, this is, and I know Jim Lee is known for that 90s X-Men run, but man, this to me is, he made Hush hush to me and not to take anything away from Jeff Loeb. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> Those are some great thoughts. I think that that's a great way to end the uh, top segment. arc. I like that segment name, man. That's badass. Do you guys have anything else you want to wrap up about it? I mean, I think we, the we, only go, we weren't super, super detailed about it. The only additional comment I'll make is it almost reminded me of the Arkham video games, like the opening scene where you got Batman's almost like his detective mode, like honing in on the weapon, who it is, like the, it's almost like the heart rate and all this stuff. Like, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like Jim Lee was making the video game come to life through still image, which I just thought was fantastic. That's a good point. Absolutely. I loved that. And I love like his, the computer array in the uh, bat cave where it's like holographic, almost like um, Tony Stark, sort of like the yeah, Tony Stark yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Rich, I, I heard you say it before, but the, um, I totally forgot about it and I can't believe I did. Let me see if I can yeah. guess the Ferris wheel of Batmobiles. Yes. Mm. <laughs> Although I was a little upset, unless I missed it, I did not see the '89 Batmobile on there. Oh, I don't. I don't. I didn't at. see it either. I saw the animated series. You see the '60s. You see uh, the classic ones. You saw the Batman Forever one. I'm like, what the hell is this? I could not recommend this story arc uh, more. I think that uh, this is definitely one of the one of the best story arcs that I've ever read. Absolutely, and I highly recommend it. And I think Mark got what what got you into wanting to buy this this story arc. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I you know that's a really good question. I don't know. Well, you weren't disappointed. No, absolutely not. So, Mark, the one thing that I said I'd come back to if you're still interested in broadening your Batman palette. This is a bit of a big undertaking, though is you really need to uh, read the um, the Nightfall series. I mean, I, I'll be the first one to tell you, I never read the Nightfall and Night Quest Nights End. I never did read it. And I know that you told me I need to. I have, I'm looking at boxes and boxes and boxes of comics, and I know... Who's the writer artist on that? The whole damn... It's a, it's a lot. It pretty much was the Batman family books. Uh, Nightfall went from... It was one year, 93 to 94, including okay. Nightfall, Night Quest, Night Ends. But it was pretty much all the bat books including the robin robin actually started his his standalone book started with within the night quest um sub arc i guess i would call it yes highly recommend this story uh we'll have to dip into another one here i don't know if we're going to do this every episode but uh maybe we could uh throw it out to the listeners please recommend really awesome story arcs some of your favorites and we'll try to do them and maybe even have you on to discuss why you think it's your top story arc. Um, Absolutely. I love to get a Marvel one. Um, maybe even, you know, off the, off the cuff, non, you know, big two. Uh, who would win, boys? Time for WWW. <laughs> <laughs> Whose turn is it? I went last time. Uh, Mark was before that because we did a little double feature action with Rob went first and Mark. 
than me. So I think it's back to you, Rob. Full circle. I did pose this question on our Facebook page and got zero responses because apparently nobody loves that charity case anymore. So we didn't get any replies. So Rob, it's back in your court, sir. <laughs> All <laughs> and right. You promised, um, and you promised not to do any. I've got a matchup if you if you if you can't think of anything. No. Um, it's gonna be a good one. <laughs> I hope so. All right. So I I've been inspired by Jim Lee's Killer Croc. I would like us to uh, face off Killer Croc versus the Lizard, also known as Doctor. Kurt Connors from Spider-Man. So, gentlemen, who would win? I go for the lizard. Plead your case. I think he still has somewhat of his intellect. I think uh, that has a huge part of it, his intellect. I don't think that, I think that he has gone up against not just Spider-Man, but also other villains. I think that he's just had more experience. I don't think Killer Croc, I think he's just like a goon. You know, I think he's just like, you know, a bank robber and a, you know, lizard. He's just... And I threw a rock at him. (laughs) That's exactly what came into mind. Lizard, I think he has more intellect and I think he has more experience. I think he's a true sinister kind of, or can be that kind of predator, arch enemy, villain. And plus Uh, he he has some humanity to him because he can go back to Dr. Kirk Connors. uh, I think I'm going to piggyback on that. I I think I'm going to go with the lizard as well. I feel that uh, I kind of, I agree with you on that. I think that uh, Killer Croc is almost like a a henchman per se. Dr. Kurt Connors is somewhat of a genius and he was trying to just come up with a pretty inventive way of growing his arm back only to have the worst possible outcome. Um, And I feel that he's, he's obviously his mind is obviously mutated in the process of becoming the lizard and obviously doesn't do stand up scientific things while he is the lizard. But I mean, I think that uh, he still, he still would have a portion of that scientific mindset, I guess, and kind of a genius in that regard. And I think that killer croc is he's, he's, he's probably stronger than the lizard, although he doesn't have a giant tail. Um, but I think that, uh, you're probably right in like a hand to hand boxing match. It might, it might be a little bit more towards the killer croc, but I mean, the lizard could probably just whack him with his tail and, uh, knock him unconscious. I don't know. I think that, uh, that's a, that's a good matchup. I like that and go in the old reptile arena. Um, I think I'm gonna give it to the lizard though, Rob. So at first, I think it would be a bloody fight. Oh, so I yeah. I mean, you got Killer Croc, so it's Waylon Jones. So he was like a crocodile wrestler, right? You know, turned criminal meathead. He does have rejuvenating healing factor. I think both of them are pretty evenly matched there. I mean, I knew the lizard had that since that was kind of the whole reason you know, Dr. Connors even went down that road. Um, so they're both, they both kind of got the Wolverine status, you know, so they would be regenerating things. But I think at the end of the day, you would have um, superior intellect in Dr. Connors. Yep. Um, although if memory serves, then Mark, you might have to check my uh, uh, naive understanding of the Marvel universe. Some of Connors 
higher level thinking is kind of shut off when he's in that reptilian like uh, rage like basic instinct type right like yeah. he kind of gives into those animal instincts right um but part of me wonders through this matchup you know just getting sliced and diced and you know growing tails back and everything that you know he might start to wake up a bit so i think i think the lizard just edges out on top of uh killer croc wow is this so a first to the lizard as well is this the first time all three of us have agreed yes it was a good choice rob yeah i like that matchup a lot just uh, again inspired by mr jim lee's uh phenomenal take on that character i mean it actually makes the batman the animated series croc looks like a croc i threw a rock at him <laughs> so what is the name of that episode Almost got him. Almost got him. That is about it. And it was it was Batman disguised as Croc, right? Yes. Love that episode. And I think we'll leave it there. Another badass episode, boys. Um, I guess in, in I guess in closing, check out Hush. Check out Matthew Clickstein's book, The Kids of Widney Junior High Take Over the World. I always want to say Wib with a B, but it's Wid with a D. Um, I'm really excited to finish that. And uh, shoot us your recommendations for top arcs, man. Let's let's get some more uh, dialogue. We got. We would love to hear suggestions. And also, don't forget to throw us your www's. Let's let's have some really cool matchups. I like to get listeners matchups over the three of us necessarily. Um, Indeed, we do have stickers. I know everybody, including myself, loves some stickers. I love me some stickers. So uh, if you guys want some pretty cool hologram stickers for your sticker collections, I guess. I don't know. Email us. Email us at heroeshomebase at gmail, and we'll send you out send you out some stickers. We'd love to get them in your hands. Um, so with that, another great episode, boys. Until next time, this is Rich. This is Mark. This is Rob. Um, once again, the three of us really uh, appreciate everybody listening. Um, if you would, uh, wouldn't mind subscribing, liking, leaving a comment on your podcast listening app of choice. Um, again, you can email us at Heroes Home Base at Gmail. You can also check out our Facebook page, uh, Heroes Home Base Podcast. Until next time, uh, we really appreciate you keep listening. Thank you for listening. Oh, sorry. Way to go, man. <laughs> we ready? I'm about to fall asleep. It's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Take your filter Thank you off. for listening. Oh, shut up! <laughs> Trying to get in the zone. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and supporting this RMR production.